All right, so we're teaching through everyday discipleship. This morning is going to be a little bit more topical, but as we've been saying, I think it's really good to remind ourselves of what was going on in the church in Corinth. Corinth was in the midst of the Greco-Roman world. It was adopted, or excuse me, the church there in Corinth was really adopting the lifestyle, the habits, and mores of the culture around it rather than reflecting the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus. And so Paul, sometimes it feels like Paul has this laundry list of issues with the church, but really Paul is just pointing out that these Corinthians have a greater disease, and that's that they have failed to understand the real-life implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul writes to bring them back into line with the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom of God. And I I love this quote because I think it's really helpful for framing the book of Corinthians, I think it's really helpful for framing how we move forward as the church today. But Leslie Newbegin said this, the choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by our culture, by the biblical story or by the cultural story? Now, in our studies, we've come to one of the most controversial subjects of the biblical text, and that is the subject of sexual ethics. And maybe I should just start by saying, human beings have never found this to be an easy topic to deal with. I don't know if there's anybody who has come to faith in Christ and read the biblical sexual ethic and said, I like that. I want to do that. That sounds good to me because it pushes against self-determination, autonomy, what we as humans are always after. God puts limits on our freedom, and yet God wants to give us infinite meaning in him. Now, as we talk about the the subject of sexual ethics, it used to be that people rejected the biblical sexual ethic because it was too moral. Oh, you puritanical people. How can you think this way? So old and ancient Now people reject the biblical sexual ethic and they say they don't want to be a Christian because it is too immoral. Things have radically changed in people and our culture's view on the Bible. Now many object to the biblical sexual ethic because they say that the historical Christian and biblical view is harmful to certain people, especially LGBTQI, et cetera, people. And for many, I think this issue is framed as a choice between either biblical faithfulness or love of neighbor. And this is just one of many objections to the Bible, but I think objections, especially to the biblical sexual ethic, go something like this. If God is a God of love and commands us to love, then how can the Bible teach fill in the blank? Do you wrestle with this question? Maybe you yourself have experienced hurt at the hands and mouths of the church, of other Christians. Have you struggled with how to talk about the subject with your loved ones? Have you felt shame 
and an inability to share your own struggles with sexuality based on your experience in the church. My heart is to create a safe environment in the church for us to be able to do that. We all struggle. We're all broken. And Jesus is the great healer. Now let me say the scriptures do not pit love against faithfulness, love of God versus love of neighbor, or truth against grace. Love, of course, is the supreme command of God. We're called to love and obey God while also loving and serving our neighbor. And so that's what I hope that this conversation will be and what it will lead to. It will lead to faithfulness to both of these commands, to love God supremely and to love our neighbor as ourself. So let's begin the conversation. As it was said, what I wanna talk about this morning is how can the biblical sexual ethic be good for everyone? And I wanna just start with a little disclaimer. I know that for many, this subject is deeply personal. It might be because of your own struggles with sex and your sexuality. It may be because of a loved one or a dear friend who is gay, transgender, who's dealing with gender dysphoria or gender confusion. And so my desire this morning is not to place a brick wall in front of anyone and say, this is the end of the discussion. You just have to deal with it. But instead, to start a conversation and dialogue that should already be going on in the church and in this church. And that's how do we wrestle with God over these issues of sexuality that are so personal and so relationally sensitive. So let's start by talking about the current warring views on sex. Most modern Western people would say that sex is about pleasure. It's about self-expression, it's about exploration, it's about novelty and spontaneity. And as far as I know, the one rule of our culture's sexual morality is this, the law of mutual consent. That's the one law. And now within our current culture, we kind of have two different viewpoints on sex and sexuality. There's the sexual liberation viewpoint, and that says this, desire plus consent equals freedom. Desire plus consent equals freedom. But here's the question, are we more free? Has this view and this practice led to freedom? Well, the increase in violent pornography Open sex, cohabitation, has not actually made us more free. And it's not producing bonding and connection, but instead it's producing loneliness. Do you know that in 2018, the UK appointed a loneliness minister? At that level of government, to appoint someone who is trying to figure out what is wrong with people in our society. Why are they so lonely and empty? This narrative looks more like this. Desire plus consent equals disillusionment. This is what I should be experiencing. 
This is what I'm actually experiencing, and in the middle is disillusionment. Then there's the moral narrative or the fear side viewpoint. That is moral standards plus willpower equals holiness. Let me say that again. Moral standards plus the power of the will equals holiness. This is the anti-Nike slogan, just don't do it. But it actually, it doesn't work. Statistically, when you look at the church compared with the culture, it's really not far different in its practice of hookup, <clears throat> cohabitation, lust, and the usage of pornography. So the way this narrative really works is this, moral standards plus willpower equals failure, and it produces incredible shame and guilt. But then there is the biblical sexual ethic. Because God's view of sex is actually neither of these. And contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not have a low view of the body and sex, but in fact a very high view of it. See, this low view of sex and body, this view of sex basically as appetite, was actually the prevalent view of the Corinthian culture. And it seems to be what the Corinthian church were embracing. <clears throat> know what's going on here with my cough. I'm sorry. Paul in verse 13, he seems to be quoting some in the church that say this, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, right? In other words, what are they saying? Sex is the same as appetite. If you're hungry, just feed it. It really doesn't matter what you do with your physical body. It's just gonna be destroyed in the end. What matters is your soul. What matters is your spirit. And in your spirit, you can be connected to God. But with your body, it doesn't really matter what you do. See, this is a very low view of the body. And it's actually a Platonistic view of the body. Sex in the physical world is gonna burn, it's sinful, it's broken, and your mind is what is spiritual, and that's really what matters or what defines you, your mind. And we see this happening in our culture right now where rather than bringing our minds back into alignment with our physical bodies, we are trying to, some are trying to align their bodies physically with how they feel and think about themselves mentally. This is new Gnosticism. This is Platonistic thinking in our culture. But the Bible, in stark contrast to this, as I said, has a very high and beautiful view of both the body and sex and the physical world. Remember, the teaching of Scripture is that God created the physical body. God created sex and the physical world. And the story of the Bible, the great arc of the Bible, is that God is going to redeem it. That God isn't just going to get rid of our bodies in the end. And sometimes in the church, we have this view that we are gonna be these disembodied souls that go up to this place called heaven, a non-physical realm forever, sitting on clouds playing harps. If that's what the future is, I'm out. That sounds worse than this life. And God says what is to come 
oh, it is so far better than we can possibly imagine. God is going to redeem this world. He's gonna fill it up with his glory. God made the physical world. He loves the physical world. He loves human bodies, and he is going to one day redeem them and make them whole. That is the biblical ark. Now, of course, when God made the first humans, he made them male and female, is what we're taught in Genesis. He made them sexually complementary. He called them to be fruitful and multiply. We might be uncomfortable with this, but the modern translation is this. Have lots of sex, make lots of human covenant partners who will fill the earth with God's image and glory and graciously rule over the earth like God does. That's what God wants for humans. Now, the first man and woman become this biblical prototype for marriage and sexual relationships, and the rest of Scripture assumes this. So when Jesus is questioned thousands of years later about marriage or issues surrounding it, he always references Genesis 2 and the story of the first marriage. He highlights the fact that they are, excuse me, there it highlights the fact that they are male, that they're female, that they become united by becoming one flesh, and that in their relationship they are naked. They are physically naked, but this is also a metaphor of their relationship to one another. What is it? Open, transparent, trusting. Nothing to be afraid of, nothing to hide. And that they are unashamed, without fear and shame, totally vulnerable. So God's ideal from the beginning is that sexual relationships would be exclusively between one man and woman in a committed covenant relationship for life. This is God's intention for marriage. Now Paul, many years later, would write in Ephesians 5 that marriage and sexual intimacy are actually not ends in themselves. Marriage serves a greater purpose than just partnership, procreation, pleasure, and sex. It serves actually a deeper purpose. What is that deeper purpose? Well, Paul tells us that it is a picture or a sign of what God's covenant love is like. Marriage is a sign of God's covenant love with his people. So then marriage really isn't about us. We don't have the right as humans, especially as followers of Jesus, to redefine that or make it what we want it to be. It's about God, and it's about, as Sally Lloyd-Jones loves to say, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what it's about. The love is ultimately displayed in God entering time and space, giving himself sacrificially to redeem us from the brokenness of our sin and to bring us into what he always intended for us, life in the kingdom of heaven. 
This is why marriage is to be a lifelong commitment of faithfulness to one spouse, because again, marriage is a sign. There's something bigger at play. You know, when I do marriage ceremonies, I love to remind both the um, groom and bride of this. Like, yeah, we're here this moment and we're excited about you, you guys look beautiful, we're all excited to be here, but this is a picture of what is to come. This is a picture of the marriage supper of the lamb. And this is a sign of God's covenant love. And so everyone right here in the audience is observing something so powerful, this offer of God's love to humanity. I will give you my love eternally. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be true. This is a word to human desire. God is reaching out and speaking to us in that moment. That's why I love doing weddings. Beautiful evangelistic gospel opportunity to talk about what we're made for, what will satisfy us. Marriage is a sign. Now, because marriage is a sign, because it's about God's covenant, unfailing love, sex in marriage is therefore the way that we say to our spouse, I belong to you and you alone. It's a way to know our spouse deeply, intimately. It's a way to serve our spouse, a way to give pleasure rather than to get pleasure. And this exclusivity builds intimacy, vulnerability, and deep connectedness. Now, Jesus' followers, because that's what this church is about, we want to be followers of Jesus, abstain from extramarital sex and fight desires that would be unfaithful to our marriage commitments in order to witness how God works in the gospel. See, it's actually not about us. My covenant with Grace, my wife, is actually not about necessarily just me being faithful to Grace, me being true to her. It's about me being true to the gospel. It's about me being true to the one who rescued and redeemed me, which is actually far more compelling than just me being true to my spouse. Because well, she's a human being who's just as broken as I am. But God, God is different. God is true. He's constant. He's the one constant thing. He's a thing that our souls were made for. Through the gospel, God calls people into an exclusive relationship with him. It's a marriage covenant, as it were. And to give him anything less in return is unfaithfulness. So the Bible is basically saying Jesus' followers should not give ourselves sexually to anyone until we have committed every part of ourselves to that person. Just as God does not give him, excuse me, just as God does not give his intimate love to people outside of a covenant with Jesus. Our lives as Jesus followers are to pattern God's life and love in every way. Now finally, sex outside of marriage covenant undermines this character quality of faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. And this is the foundation 
of life. It's the foundation of marriage. It's the foundation of the family. It's the foundation of communities. It's the foundation of society. Faithfulness, that people are true, that people are reliable. And this is to be a huge marker for God's people, faithfulness. You know, chastity or fidelity is not just a state, but it's a form of the virtue of faithfulness. And this is necessary for the health of the home as well, as I just said, it's the very bedrock of human community. Therefore, fidelity or faithfulness is as crucial to married life as it is to a single life. So Jesus calls his followers that are married, not just to sexual fidelity, but to total and complete fidelity to one's spouse. In thought, in word, in deed, right? It's a wholehearted or whole person devotion. Anything outside of whole heart, whole life commitment to our spouse is actually out of sync with the way of Jesus. Now, anything outside of this one man, one woman, sexual relationship in in covenant for a lifetime, anything outside of this, the Bible calls sexual immorality. And this term in scripture is used like a sexual junk drawer. Right? Anything outside of what I just said That's where it goes. That is considered sexual immorality. And as we heard last week, those who practice, what do we mean by that? Those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus and this is what I will do with my life. Closed fist, not struggling, not confused, not needing help, not confessing brokenness, but no, this is mine and I am going to express myself this way. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how can this definition of sex and sexuality be good for singles, same-sex attracted people, trans people, people dealing with gender dysphoria or gender confusion? I mean, doesn't it feel like the big tease from the Bible? if we're honest. How often have we heard pastors and Christian authors celebrate the goodness of a certain version of male and female humanness, what I like to call hyperfemininity and hypermasculinity. And then you think, well, where do I fit in? I hate dresses. I'm not a girly girl. Or maybe you're a guy and you're like, I've never benched in my life. Where do I fit into these categories? You know, when Christian leaders and authors talk about the greatness of marriage and the hotness of their sex life, and then for everyone who doesn't fit into that category, what, we're just doomed to loneliness and God's second best? Come on, tell me I'm not alone here. We've all felt this if we're honest with ourselves. Is this an accurate depiction of the biblical teaching? It's actually not. And this is an example of where culture has actually defined our views on masculinity and femininity and sex. 
instead of the Bible. It's a depiction of our culture being over-sexualized. And it's a depiction of our culture's previous views on hypermasculinity and hyperfemininity. And now it's rejection of all of that because it is toxic, because it is actually not true to the human experience. And as I said, this view has not just shaped the culture, it has radically shaped the church. Now, I think something that we don't talk about enough is the sexual brokenness of human nature. What do I mean by that? Well, we're sexual creatures, and this is something created by God. It's good. But because of the fall, that is our separation from God, our identity in God, our purpose and mission given to us by God, because of our separation from all that, sin has tainted everything. So even something good like sex and sexuality is tainted by sin. We have unnatural desires. Some have gender dysphoria, confusion about our identity and purpose. We have misdirected desires. We objectify both male and female. Think about advertisement. It is just one big objectification of humanity. Again and again and again. What does sex have to do with toothpaste? Right? We are so over-sexualized in our culture. We use and abuse humans, image bearers of God, and we have made both in the culture and in the church, many times in the church, sex a totally selfish and self-fulfilling act. My conviction is that, as I just described it, all of us suffer from sexual brokenness to some degree. But some of us will experience healing I'm talking about followers of Jesus. All of us will struggle to some degree with sexual brokenness, but the good news is that one day we will be made whole. We will be made whole, and this is something we need to remember, to look forward to, and to remind one another of often. Our God is the God of redemption in all of its various forms of brokenness. God redeems humans. Now remember, the Bible is also full of sexually broken people. I had people asking me today, should my kids sit in this morning? Why? Because the Bible's full of sexually deviant stuff. <laughs> they don't want their kids to hear that at this age, right? The Bible is full of sexually broken people. Nobody gets it 100% right. <clears throat> Following shortly after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, there's incest, rape, Polygamy, adultery, divorce, perversion, heartache, and so on and so forth. And so goes human history. The Bible is filled with sexually broken people. And yet, listen, the story doesn't stop there. God enters into time and space into our own personal stories in order to redeem us at the cost of his own life. 
in order that we might find our identity, purpose, and mission in his story. That we would all realize that in our sexual brokenness, it's not about sex. It's about God. It's not about sex. It's about our identity in God. It's not about sex. It's about our purpose in God. It's not about sex. It's about our mission. To follow in the way of Jesus and to put the kingdom of God on display. As we follow Jesus, he shows us this new way to be human that actually leads to the flourishing and human wholeness that every human longs for. This is my conviction. And because of this, I think that there are some missteps that we have made as a church and a church culture And I think that we need to start correcting those. I think we need to repent. We need to turn from those. If we're going to properly put the life of Jesus and the kingdom of God on display, if we're gonna properly experience that ourselves. So are you guys ready for some missteps? I think I have like 10 missteps. Yeah, we're ready. Front row's ready. Okay, misstep number one, let me just say this. Some of these aren't necessarily taught, they're caught, they're assumed. It's just the water we're all swimming in. Here's number one, one of my pet peeves. The Bible holds marriage up as the ultimate relationship. This is God's best for people. Oh, we don't believe that, really? Single person comes into church, oh my gosh, have you met Donnie? You need to meet Donnie. Oh, he's been single for 15 years. Oh, he's such a godly man. Oh, and he needs a wife. Why does he need a wife? Well, Donnie's lonely. Donnie's miserable. Donnie wants to be married just like everybody else. And so we create this culture where singles can't just come to church and be. Oh, I hate it. At Refuge Christian Fellowship where I pastored for 14 years, I was just like, no. I went to women specifically. I'm sorry, ladies. I don't know why. Guys do this too. But especially the women at Refuge were like, they get together, they plan people's lives out. And I was just like, no more. You will not do this on my watch. We're not gonna build this kind of culture here. So let's talk about this. The Bible holds marriage up as the ultimate relationship, God's best for people. The Bible doesn't ever say this, ever. And unfortunately, our culture, and especially the church, wrongly held up marriage as the only relationship in which humans can experience love and intimacy. Let me just say this. Don't misunderstand me. It's no wonder our country legalized same-sex marriage. Think about it. This is what whole humanness looks like. This is what real love and real intimacy, this is the only place you can find it. And all of you that struggle, you can't have it. You're half a human. You'll forever be lonely and empty. Sorry, just the way it is. It's not true, it's a lie. The Bible actually celebrates many and varied intimate and loving relationships that people can have. Do you guys know what the first mention of love in the Bible is? Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. The first mention, and this is important. Whenever you find a first mention in scripture, this is very important because it defines going forward what we're talking about. The first mention of love in scripture is of a father's love for his child. 
Isn't it interesting that God reveals himself as father, us as his wayward children whom he longs to love and embrace. In the Bible, though marriage is held up as something good that God created, don't get me wrong, marriage is penultimate. Only God and his love is ultimate. Only God. And God does not withhold himself from anyone. He'll give this intimate love to anyone who will receive it. Therefore, the biblical sexual ethic does not refuse or bar people from God's best. God's best is offered to everyone freely through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's live it out. Listen to this. Paige Benton, singled out for good. I am so thankful for singles and for their hermeneutic that they have given to the church. It has helped me as a pastor so much. God bless the single people. May they grow to maturity in this fellowship and be used mightily by God. Paige Benton says this, to be single is not to be alone. If someone asks you if you're in a relationship right now, your immediate response should be that you are in dozens. Our range of relational options is not limited to getting married or to living in the soundproof, isolated booth of Miss America pageants. Christian growth mandates relational richness. The only time folks talk about human covenants is in premarital counseling. How anemic. If our God is a covenantal God, then all of our relationships are covenantal. Hmm. That is good. Misstep number two. If I don't have sex, I'll die. (laughs) You might have thought it. You might have felt it. Somebody might have said that to you. It's not true. Many virgins and celibate people have lived very long, very full, joy-filled lives. You know who one of my heroes is? John Stott. Never married had beautiful, loving, brotherly relationships with women that worked with him. Not a closet pervert. Right, like some people coming out now, we're finding out, oh, this guy, oh, we thought he was faithful. We thought this guy was you know, this model of Christian leadership. No, not so. John Stott lived his whole life celibate. Man, that guy was used for the glory of God, for the building up of the church. And he lived rightly towards women in the church, treated them as mothers and sisters. God bless John Stott. Misstep number three, if I don't have sex, I'll never have intimacy with another human being. Now, this is a real one. I joke around about, you know, dying if we don't have sex, but I'll never have intimacy with another human being. Okay, listen. It is our Western culture that has defined intimacy in this way. Listen to scripture. King David talks about the love and intimacy that he had with Jonathan. He says it was better than the love of women. Now, people have gone back and said, oh, this is homoerotica in the scripture. This is what was going on with David and Jonathan. It's simply not true. And it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around this idea. You could have you know, a relationship with another man 
that surpasses the love of women? What is that? Listen, could it be that David and Jonathan had such an intimate bond that it was more meaningful and more powerful than anything David did in bed with the multiple wives that he had? David had like, I don't know, 12 wives? I don't remember how many wives he had. But he had no other friend like Jonathan. It's a covenantal friendship. But see, we've, we've relegated intimacy to mean only one thing, sex. We need to rediscover the true nature of intimacy and friendship, especially in the church, by celebrating the varied relationships and relationship dynamics that God has given to us. God is not banning anyone from deep intimacy or covenant relationships. The problem is with us. We define intimacy like our culture does to mean only sex. The church must put marriage and sex back in its proper place. We must. If we're going to put on display God's kingdom. Misstep number four. If I don't find a spouse and have children, I'll never be or I'll never have a family. If you've ever experienced a real community in the church, you know that this is not true. You guys, I live for the last 16 years, 500 miles from my parents and my wife's parents. And this is not a reflection on their love, their support or anything like that. But I tell you what, God gave us surrogate aunts, surrogate uncles, grandmas and grandpas, friends, brothers and sisters, when none of our nuclear family was present. These people loved on us and we loved them like they are family. And the way we talk, we talk as though we're family. And you know what? This is actually a very biblical idea. Remember, it was Jesus. He was like, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. They think you're nuts. And Jesus is like, who? Your mother and brothers, those who do the will of God are my mother and my brothers. Jesus redefines the family for us. And he invites any and all into this family of support, of care, of love and intimacy. God offers us in Christ all the love and security we will ever need practically found in his family community, the church. Again, the problem is with us. We need to expand our idea of family to include friends, singles, couples, a surrogate aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, grandmas, and grandpas. The nuclear family is something that Jesus pushed against himself. Not only that, but in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no marriage except God's eternal covenant with his people. No family except the family of God made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Maybe we start there. Start defining ourselves by what God's forever family looks like. We start there. Misstep number five. If I don't find my other half, I'll forever be half a person. 
it's no, it's just not. It's not half and half make one. But I'm sorry, like, this may sound ridiculous. I've read this in Christian books. I've heard pastors say stupid stuff like this. And when I, oh man, I like pull my hair out. Like, I'm just going nuts when I hear stuff like this. Because it just ostracizes people. It's one and one makes one, actually. It's biblical math. It's a little different. Also, the Bible never uses those terms. When God says in Genesis 2, let me interpret this for you if you've struggled with this. When God says in Genesis 2 that it's not good that man should be alone, yes, of course he is talking about what he's gonna do with woman. Why? Because God's gonna create community. He's gonna create society. Because God himself is a community. It's not exclusively about marriage, but we've defined it that way. It's not good for man to be alone, and we say it at marriage ceremonies, and I get why we say it, but sometimes our interpretation sounds like, oh, then if you're single, it means you're alone, and this isn't a good thing. Pull back a little bit. This is the seeds of human society, community. It's not good for human beings to be alone. What does that mean? We are meant and made for community because we've been made in the image of God who is Father, Son, and Spirit and who lives in love and deference, service, glory, and praise to one another. The dance of God that has gone on for all eternity. This is what we are made for. This is how human beings are to live in community not just in marriage. The lack of wholeness that every human feels is due to a broken relationship with God, our creator. Jesus offers all people a healed and intimate relationship with God where we can experience human wholeness and flourishing. Reconciled to God, reconciled with ourselves, mind and body being healed to think correctly about our identity, our purpose, our mission, reconciled to our neighbor, human community, reconciled to the creation as stewards over God's good work. Now, if what I'm saying about the biblical sexual ethic is true, then maybe I could imagine some pushback. Well, I'm the only type of person who has to deny myself sexually. If what you're saying is true, that this is the definition of sex for the Bible, then I'm the only type of person who has to deny myself sexually. That is not true. Listen, and listen good. This is very important. All followers of Jesus, just like Jesus, must submit and sacrifice their sexuality and sexual expression to God. Every one of us are to be submissive to God with our sex and our sexuality. Listen, Jesus rejected the desires for sex and a wife. Do you know the cultural pressures of a 30-year-old man in that culture that was not married and did not have children? They were considered strange. Strange. Actually, not caring about Genesis 2, not caring about carrying on the lineage of you know, the covenant people. What is wrong with you, Jesus? You're suspicious. Jesus rejected the desire to have his own children so that his inheritance, the Spirit, might fall upon us. 
so that we might become the children of God. Jesus is our model. All Christians are called to practice sexual fidelity and self-control either in marriage or in our singleness. And in this way, we all have to go against our selfish, autonomous nature that wants to do life our way and on our own terms. And in this way, we follow the way of Jesus, we share in the fellowships of his suffering, and we become more like him. That's all of us, not just same-sex attracted people, not just people struggling with gender confusion. It's all of us sacrificing our sex and sexuality to the way of Jesus. Now, a few common objections before we close. Number one, I was born this way. And so this is then a rejection of me as a person. Now, as much as people make this statement, there is at this time no scientific proof of a gay gene. There simply isn't. And I don't say that like, to be insensitive. Let me say this though. Christians of all people should resonate with the fact that because of sin, we are born into confusion, brokenness, broken and wrong desires and that God holds us morally responsible for all of these things. We all have different manifestations of the brokenness of sin. Some of us have a deep desire to hurt people. We must withstand those desires and bring them under the control of the spirit. Likewise with what the Bible calls sexual immorality and so on. What God offers all people who suffer under the brokenness of sin is the offer to be born again of the spirit and to be given a new nature, a new identity with new desires that are given to us by the spirit of God. Desires to love God, to obey God, to please God. Desires to love other people in a selfless and self-sacrificial way, the way God loves now, does this mean then that those other desires will go away? And look, I'm talking about sexual desires. I'm also talking about anger, violence, selfishness. We're talking about the whole thing. Think of Galatians 5, what the Bible refers to as the works of the flesh. Does this mean those desires will go away? Maybe and maybe not. The Bible never promises that in this life. But one day we will be freed from sin and sinful desires when God makes all of us whole, when God makes all things new. And the Bible doesn't teach, though, that we can be renewed. Sorry, excuse me. The Bible does teach, though, that we can be renewed in our minds, that we can be given new desires by God. And this is something that all of us have to train for as Christians, what we call spiritual formation through the spiritual disciplines, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we do take hold of our identity as followers of Jesus, and we take, you know, we train put into habit and practice the way of Jesus, those old desires can begin to lose their power and control over us. Actually, I believe that they will. They will lose their hold on us. 
And this is the call of every Christian to put to death the deeds of the flesh, your old way of thinking, of living, the way the world thinks, the way the world lives, and to follow Jesus. That's a very specific call. Follow Jesus, walk in the spirit, and not fulfill the desires of our past or our natural self. Just a few more. I know this this is a lot, sorry. This doesn't seem fair is another objection. I understand that, but I also would push back and ask, what do we mean by fair? And not to be insensitive, but what parts of life on this fallen planet are fair? Like life is filled with unfairness. I always talk to my kids about this, like, oh, that's not fair. Like, come on, work with me here. What do you mean by fairness? I could list a lot of things that are unfair between you and me right now, you know? It's not fair that you're treating me like this, right? What do we mean by unfair? Let me say this. I believe it is unfair that we often call same-sex attracted Christians to deny themselves in order to follow Jesus, all the while we, heterosexual people, whatever you want to call us, court porn addiction. Dismiss marital unfaithfulness as nothing. Or if we're single, we hook up and somehow we justify our sin as being more okay or more sanitary than theirs. It is unfair and unrighteous anytime we call others to costly follow Jesus while neglecting that same call in our own lives. May we repent of that. Let me read to you from Ed Shaw's book, Same Sex Attraction in the Church. I highly recommend this book. He says, for some reason in our generation, following Jesus is no longer about sacrifice and suffering. Western Christians have, by and large, stopped denying ourselves. We now more talk about our right to be ourselves. Our Christian lives are more about self-gratification, seemingly denying the existence of Jesus' words about taking up our cross and following him. They are a continuation of our previous lives with a thin Christian veneer, just being nicer to a few more people. The crosses we bear are the small annoyances we haven't yet managed to rid ourselves of rather than any significant suffering we intentionally embrace because we are following Jesus and want others to follow him too. We've chosen to ignore the fact that Jesus calls his disciples to make a conscious and costly decision to sacrifice ourselves, to say no to things we might want, even deserve or need, because that's what it means to follow his example. Dang. We need to get back to the way of Jesus. Jesus sacrificed himself holistically, his life was one big sacrifice for our sake. Will we not follow Jesus in this way? So is the biblical sexual ethic good? I think part of the issue is our definition of good. So here we go. Is my definition of what I think or what our culture thinks goodness is actually good? Is it actually good? We must define good and goodness. 
Also, isn't this how humanity got into the whole predicament that we're in now? Adam and Eve judged for themselves what was right, good, and true, rather than listening and obeying God who created them, who knew what he created them for, and had richly given them all things to enjoy. They're pursuing autonomy and self-determination. Rejecting God's limitations on them is what brought sin and brokenness into the world. So when people talk about the biblical sexual ethic being good for people, what we mean, what I mean this morning, is that God defines goodness for us as our Father, our loving Creator. And He has put restrictions and limits on our freedom, not to keep us from blessing, but to preserve us for it. The good things that God has for us, that we might become what we were created to be. Therefore, in the biblical sexual ethic, you will find a limit on your freedom to express your sexuality however you might feel is true to you. But as I mentioned in the beginning of our study, has this self-expression truly brought freedom in the way human beings really long to be free? Has it also brought with it deep meaning and purpose for your life? See, in Christianity, you must sacrifice your freedoms in order to follow Jesus. Just as you must do for most good things in this world. They take sacrifice, discipline, building habits. But in so doing, Jesus offers you a greater identity than you could ever make for yourself. And he offers you infinite meaning. So you can have infinite freedom, little meaning. That's what our culture offers us. Or you can have limited freedom to live the way that you want to live. But you can have infinite meaning infinite purpose and mission under Jesus. See, God desires to give us a restored identity as his image bearers. He wants to bring us into covenant partnership with him. This, I'm talking about the meaning here. Through the work of Jesus and restore our original purpose to live under his rule and guidance, which will ultimately fulfill us, fulfill our longing. So, I mean, gosh, if you've experienced sex, you know what it's really like. It's not what you're looking for. Right? I mean, come on, can I get an amen? I've had sex. It's not heaven. Amen. Right? And that's not a reflection on my marriage. I love my wife and she loves me, but sex is penultimate. It cannot sustain a human being. It cannot be our one identity. We were made for so much more. And in God, we find that more. And I believe it is our call to come back to this biblical sexual ethic as a church to live it out faithfully so that when people come into our midst, they see, man, these people, they are generous with their time, with their money and the resources, but man, they're stingy with their bodies. And that's weird. And yet, I want what they have. It's hitting something that's missing in me because we are experiencing life in the kingdom of God. We're experiencing life as it was meant to be, where we're being healed by God's spirit at work in our life, by the community of Jesus surrounding us. We're all working with one another towards human wholeness. That's what the world around us needs to experience, not billboards and picketing signs that let people know that God is anti-gay or anti-LGBTQ or any of that stuff. No, they need to see it. They need to see the fullness. 
They need to hear from our lives that offer of Jesus, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's what our culture needs from us. I am so far over my time and I've got more to say. Let me just say this last thing I promise on the Bible that I will be done. Okay, here it is. In John, excuse me, in Mark 8, remember this is this offer of Jesus where he says, if anyone would save their life, lose it. Come and die is this offer, right? Jesus is not offering us a way to save ourselves or find ourselves. His offer is totally different. He offers us salvation from sin and its destruction from ourselves. <laughs> he offers us freedom from ourselves. He says to every one of us, lose yourself for my sake. Kill what you think is right, good, and true, and you will find new life in me, new identity in me, new understanding of rightness, goodness, and truth, a new understanding of what it means to be human, of what it means to be a sexual creature created by God, what it means to live in community and intimacy with others, because in him we find the flourishing and fulfillment that all of humanity longs for. So Jesus says, come and die in order that you may truly love, live, and listen, that's a really good thing when you feel dead inside. That is a really good thing when you feel lost and alone, purposeless and directionless, when you've been abused and taken advantage of, when you've been chewed up and spit out by the over-sexualization of our culture, when you've loved and lost that is an incredible, good offer. If you follow Jesus, you will have to limit your freedoms, but you will find, as I said, infinite meaning and purpose as a child of God, a member of the family of God, a participant in the new creation. This is good. And this offers to anyone and everyone who will give themselves to Jesus. Let me say this, last thing I promise. This, is the, this isn't the end of this conversation for our church, but I think it's a good place to begin. Amen? Amen. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come now and move in our midst. Lord, I pray that if anyone in this room this morning felt just your pushing on, even if they felt angry by the things that I've said. I pray that they would search deep down to ask themselves, why am I angry? What's going on here? Or why am I afraid? What you have been pushing on Holy Spirit in each of us, would you bring that out? And would we hand it over to you as an offering? Would we say, Lord, here is my heart. Work. Speak, help me, change me, heal me, Lord Jesus. Fill that void, quench that thirst. Lord, would you do that? And Lord, as now we worship through music, we ask also that we would worship by ministering to one another. Would you give us words of wisdom and words of knowledge? Would you give us prophetic visions and utterances that we might build one another up, that we might be strengthened 
Would we hear the voice of your spirit speaking through one another this morning? We give this to you in your name. Amen.